0: Welcome to Elder Health Connection, a podcast where I gather innovators in elder healthcare to discuss their unique perspectives on caregiving and care receiving. My name is Caroline Morris, and I use my combined experience in biochemistry, physical therapy, health coaching, and growing up next door to my grandparents to dig deep into the complexities of aging. And then draw out practical solutions that can fit into your life i record this show from my home in alexandria virginia sometimes with the input from my dogs benny and barry thank you for joining us today february is one of my favorite months out of the year not only is it my birthday month it's that time in winter where the sun really starts to come back in a noticeable way, and that just lifts my spirit so much and gives me a lot of hope for the months ahead. And here in the United States, it's also Heart Month, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. So on this podcast, we will be featuring heart health-related topics for the entire month of February. It's also a great time to think about your own heart health and really a foundational measure of heart health is blood pressure. So for that reason, I am sharing my signature course, how to lower your blood pressure naturally at a deeply discounted price for the month of February so to get access to this course you can go to carolinemorris.com. it'll be on the home page you can also click the link in the show notes and i put so much love and effort into this course to bring you the best evidence around what can lower your blood pressure naturally what the research says you can expect so you know how much will each change lower your blood pressure and I also put a lot of time and attention into guiding you through how to choose which strategies will be best for you, figure out things that you'll actually do and stick with. And then you get a live call with me as a bonus of this course as well. So head on over to CarolineMorris.com. Like I said, it's on sale for the entire month of February and the price will go up come March. Hello and welcome to part three of our series on heart health for the month of February. Today we will be talking about Exercise. And as you probably suspected, we can't get all the way through Heart Month without addressing exercise, but we're doing it with a little bit of a twist today. So we will be discussing why exercise and what types of exercise are beneficial for your heart, but why they're also beneficial for your brain. So how they can prevent and actually treat neurological conditions. And to have this conversation, I invited Laura Meshes, who is a physical therapist and a board-certified clinical specialist in neurological physical therapy, to help us understand the connection between exercise and the brain a little bit better. Laura and I have worked together for the past three years, and she has been instrumental in helping me to up-level my practice when it comes to treating patients with neurological conditions and really treating them in a more root cause way. And what I mean by that is our treatments are now geared towards getting the brain to heal itself. So at the site of dysfunction, that's where the healing has occurred, whereas in the past in physical therapy, we were often treating other parts of the body because we thought we couldn't treat the brain. So this is a really exciting topic and conversation, and I can't wait for you to get to know Laura better.
1: Hi, Laura. Welcome to the show. Hi, Caroline. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Me too. I am so excited in particular for you because you, while you are a neurological specialist, you've really brought heart health to the forefront of our physical therapy practice with your patients. So I thought you would be the perfect person to talk about exercise, heart health, and how it's related to our brain health as
1: well. Thank you. Yes, there's so much new research out there and I'm just happy and excited to share it and hope to get others motivated to get out and exercise more and find out what what does that mean? What what do you actually need to do? So, thank you again. <laughs>
0: yes. So, before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional experience so far?
1: Sure. As Caroline said, I'm a neurologic certified specialist in physical therapy. So I went on for additional training and had to take another exam to become a specialist, which required, of course, a lot more studying and and research and work. And I just I've kind of fallen in love with the population of, of folks who've gone through neurologic injuries or in it, And also just the older adult population in general, because I've noticed so many people don't know where to begin again after an injury or just kind of get back into activity and exercise in general. And um, many folks are worried about, oh, is it safe? How much can I do? What do I even need to do? So I really enjoy being able to educate folks and show them what they can do, just unleash their potential that they already have inside. So it's really fun. I really, really enjoy it. It is, and
0: that those are my two loves in physical therapy too, the older adults and the neurological conditions. And there's really so much overlap between them. A lot of our our pe- people. Patients with neurological conditions are older. So, can you give us maybe a glimpse as to what type of neurological conditions you typically treat?
1: Sure. So, most of the folks that I treat have had a stroke or traumatic brain injury. Um, also, movement disorders such as Parkinson's. Those are the main groups so far that I treat. Also, have experience with folks with spinal cord injury or MS or other types of neurodegenerative diseases. But a lot of the the research that I've done and a lot of the, the focus of of what I'll, I'll present too is information from folks with chronic conditions, chronic stroke, chronic brain injury. And that's so common.
0: I mean, I think we get a little biased working with it every day, but For those of you listening, I'm sure you know someone who's had a stroke, you know someone who has Parkinson's disease, who's had a brain injury or concussion. It's just,
1: it's common in our population right now. Yeah, definitely. So I feel like a lot of this information that I'll talk about not only applies to folks with neurological diseases or disorders, but especially to the average adult and older adult too.
0: And I think now with how common dementia is and how it is the number one neurodegenerative condition, a lot of us are, even if we don't have a neurological disorder, have that in the back of our mind and want to do all we can to prevent developing dementia in ourselves and in
1: our loved ones. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's a really... Great segue um, into talking about one of the amazing benefits of cardiovascular exercise. And when I when I speak about cardiovascular exercise, I'm going to be speaking more to a, a higher intensity, so a moderate to high intensity exercise. And I'll discuss kind of what, what that means in a little bit. But one of the biggest and most relevant Impacts of doing a type of car- high intensity, moderate intensity cardiovascular exercise is improving your brain health and decreasing your risk for Alzheimer's and dementia. So, there's lots of really awesome research showing that cardiovascular exercise will improve your cerebral blood flow. And when we have more blood flow to our brain, it helps our brains to get rid of toxins and inflammation and it primes your brain for learning more. So allowing you to take that extra time to learn a language or participate in some other cognitive stimulating tasks too. Um, And we also know that vascular damage is a large contributing factor to Alzheimer's and dementia. So if we can do things to help prevent the vascular damage, then we can thus prevent these diseases. So
0: vascular would be the, the blood vessels inside the brain? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for clarifying.
1: So other things that can be improved in your brain is the connections between the neurons or the nerves in your brain. Some folks might have heard of the word neuroplasticity. So how our brains can change or always changing your your brain was is different now than it was at the beginning of our conversation just because of what you've you've learned and where what you've been thinking about since you've started listening to this the stronger that we can build those these connections in our brain the better we can think the faster we can process or the better we can move so that's just a really exciting information to know that we can, we can change our brain. It is really exciting. And it's,
0: I think for me, starting to learn about neuroanatomy and the way the brain works when I was in school, that it's not the absolute number of neurons or the size of your brain that counts. It's the amount of connections between them that makes us smarter. And as we learned in, physical therapy school it's also those connections that help us to improve our movement early on too even before we gain strength it's just the precision of the brain talking to the right muscle at the right time that really starts to move things to improvement for us
1: absolutely it's just it's just so cool that we can have the power to improve these connections which shows up in learning a new task. So that's, that's how we know that your brain is restructuring. We, we see it not only on, on studies, um, FMRI studies, but it, once you learn how to accomplish a new movement or learn a new task or skill, that's your brain changing and creating those connections. And, and speaking along those lines, there also is some, some research that shows we may be able to create some new neurons in the memory centers of our brain, because some of the studies have showed there's increased volumes in this area. So one of the known areas being hippocampus. That's still under some, some investigation, but like Caroline mentioned, the, the more connections that we can create, the, the better our processing and just the better overall brain health. So
0: how does exercise improve the connections in the brain?
1: Exercise can improve our brain's connections basically by improving our blood supply, as I mentioned. So the better blood supply we have to our neurons, the healthier they are and the better they can establish those connections. So another really great benefit of cardiovascular exercise, especially for folks who have Parkinson's, is that it allows dopamine which is a neurotransmitter to be available in the brain longer and what that simply means is it allows these individuals the ability to move more easily so that's been really exciting information too because oftentimes folks with parkinsons will have difficulty initiating and continuing movement and as long as we can get these individuals exercising and moving and getting the the blood supply back to their brain we can they can improve their ability to walk and to move yeah i remember when i was researching parkinson's
0: a few years ago ago reading that treadmill walking reliably increases cognition in Parkinson's on top of improving mobility, which I found to be really exciting. And it's probably related to the, both the blood flow and the dopamine. Oh, absolutely. And I also remember reading in post-stroke about a a factor called BDNF alpha, which I think is brain derived neurotropic factor. So that yes. sounds right to you. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And when we exercise at higher intensities, it is released and helps the brain to repair itself after a stroke, which I thought was so cool <laughs> because usually, absolutely. you know, when I was going through PT school, the big breakthrough was the neuroplasticity that the brain can change and evolve. And it's not stagnant and then with this BDn alpha BDNF alpha, <laughs> it's like another layer of breakthrough that the brain not only can adapt but it can heal and repair, which wasn't something we thought could happen before.
1: The brain is so awesome. <laughs> and um to that point too, a lot of the the research that is coming out in for the physical therapy community is focused on, folks with chronic stroke, brain injury, and the like that the cardiovascular exercise is safe and appropriate and can help improve your ability to walk and do other functions of life. And I know they're working on creating more guidelines around the subacute and acute because there are, of course, studies that show that exercise with these populations is safe. What is the difference
0: between acute, subacute, and chronic? How would I know if I fall into one of those three?
1: Very good question. So chronic typically is individuals who are six months post-stroke and out. The subacute phase, most folks look at between the three and the six months, there's some studies I think that look at maybe two months or so, and then acute is that first one to two months out. Okay. So that can be your different stages. And the reason they first started synthesizing research in the chronic population was just to avoid any potential spontaneous improvements that can occur within the, that first month or so after having a stroke. So once the Swelling decreases and there's more more healing that naturally occurs, as you were mentioning, as as soon as we can help the individual reduce the inflammation and improve or speed up their healing, the better off
0: they're going to be. Yeah, and just in case anyone doesn't know a stroke sometimes is called a brain attack. So much like a heart attack, it's when blood flow to the brain is interrupted either by a clot, so blocking blood flow to some brain tissue, or by a bleed. And so what Laura is describing is, you know, the stroke generally is a one-time event. Sometimes it can be a little dicey for a few days, but there is a predictable healing process where like with any injury. We tend to see the most improvements early on and then they taper off and then it's easier to study in the chronic phases because not a lot is changing just due to the natural healing process.
1: Exactly. We know not only is exercise important to improve brain health, but we know that exercise is important in decreasing your risk for stroke, decreasing your risk for cardio vascular disease in general, high, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity. There's a lot of studies more about improving one's mental health. And so decreasing your risk for depression and even reducing your risk for types of cancer. There's other studies out there showing it can help regulate hormones. So especially important to women going through menopause, mm. it can also decrease one's risk for falls. So we know that the slower walking speeds are associated with a higher fall risk. So if we can improve someone's walking speed a little bit more safely, we can decrease their risk for falls and decreasing the risk for fractures and hospitalizations. We can also see improvements in sleep. So we won't go into that whole sleep conversation now, but we know that when we get a good amount of sleep that we, we move better, better, our brains function better, similarly with decreasing stresses as cardiovascular exercise can decrease stress, which is important for, for brain health and for our cardiac health in general. So I can go on and on talking about all of those different types of benefits
0: too. Yeah. And I think that really shows that while we might focus on one organ or one body system at a time, they really are all connected and improving health in one area of our life or our body is
1: going to spill over into other areas as well. Absolutely. So you get so much bang for your buck to be doing some cardiovascular exercise and I'll go into the, the dose. So I like to think of exercise almost as as a medication that's easier for you to take than having to take a medication. So the the dose of the cardiovascular exercise per week is also important, but at least one dose of this can attack so many different areas, so many different body systems. So maybe we can move on to what types of exercise can I do simply starting off with briskly walking if that's something you're able to do. So I know folks have heard, get your steps in. Well, that's true. (laughs) We want to get your steps in and upwards of 12,000 steps a day would be ideal. But anywhere you can start and work your way up to that number, the better. You can go for a jog if that's something you enjoy or swim or ride a bike. And it's the more interested that you are in that activity, the more you're going to be engaged and the more your brain will benefit from it as well. So something that is meaningful and important to you is where you'll see even more of those brain benefits from exercise. I know there's some communities will offer different walking programs. I I recommend to my patients to, to take a look at what our Arlington community has to offer so definitely check you out where wherever you live what your local community has whether it's a, a walking program or they have different exercise classes because the more you are engaged with others the more that you're again your brain is engaged in that activity the, the more socialization you have the slower your brain your cognitive decline occurs. I also I don't know a lot of detail about this program, but I know there's a the silver sneakers program that's on the more national level. So applicable for those with Medicare. Caroline, you have any other more national resources or campaigns?
0: I'm not thinking of any off the top of my head on the national level, but I know a lot of communities will have senior centers, community centers. Sometimes religious groups will do exercise classes, gyms. There
1: there are a lot of options. If you or your loved one does have any neurological disease, I know... There are lots of classes, for instance, for folks who have Parkinson's. So checking your your local community or city to see if they have a Parkinson's organization or a group for individuals post-stroke and see what else is available. Thank goodness for the internet to easily search these things. Um, I know a lot of things are on Zoom right now, too, which has its pluses and, and minuses, but could be another awesome way to at least get get initiated and start to meet some other folks in your area. And if some of those larger things such as you know, going for a jog or a swim or riding a bike are too challenging, too, or just not feasible where you are. Increasing your cardiovascular intensity can also be achieved by an exercise such as doing repeated step-ups. So those that have done step aerobics in the past, that might ring a bell. For some of my patients, I might have them do two to three minutes of repeated step-up and then take a 30-second rest and then do two to three minutes of repeated sit-to-stands and go back and forth between those two exercises for 10 to 12 minutes. So as long as you're doing those those exercises in in bouts of about 10 minutes, that can give you a really good boost of your of the cardiovascular exercise dose that you need for part of your day.
0: Okay, so it's sounding like as long as it's repetitive for 10 minutes you can do almost anything is that true?
1: Yeah. Anything that you're engaged in, anything that you enjoy, anything that gets your heart rate into the target zone, which that can lead us to our next topic is measuring your intensity and what, how, how high or how hard do I have to work in for how long intensity? So how hard you're, you're working is, is the key here. And we want to be in that moderate to high intensity zone. So. How do you know if you're in that zone? Well, this zone is defined by increasing your heart rate from the 70 to 85% of your heart rate max. So that would be the target zone that I recommend to my patients and to you all, if safe. And we'll we'll discuss some safety limitations afterwards. If you find your rate max if we use heart rate as our metric for example the most simple way of determining that is calculating taking your to take 220 and subtract your age and then you can multiply that by a percentage so for instance if you're trying to figure out your heart rate minimum that you want to achieve we multiply to 20 minus your age times 0.7. And that could be your, your goal. This is where I want to get my heart rate at least to, to this number. Other things to consider if you're on a medication such as a beta blocker, this will decrease your heart rate. So this measure might not be always very reliable. And if you can't rely on your heart rate to tell you how intense you're working We might need to look to another way, such as an intensity scale. And the most simplified way that I I tell my patients is to think about a one to 10 scale. So one, you're about not doing hardly any work whatsoever. You're kind of just hanging out on your couch to attend. It's the hardest activity you could ever imagine doing. And we want to be somewhere between that. Seven, six, seven, eight number. Again, the, the moderate, so that middle-ish to the high. Another way to think about it, too, is if you can carry on a, a little bit of a conversation, but not sing. So there are some different ways for you to, to self-monitor without relying on the heart rate. So you have to be working. <laughs> okay. You have to be working. So. <laughs> Our conversation right now is definitely not getting us anywhere, <laughs> sitting and talking. But if you're, if you're out on your walk and you feel like you could still sing as you're walking, maybe try to crank up the speed a little bit to get a little bit more work in. If we're going to go the heart rate monitoring route, there are some awesome new technologies out there that can help you keep track of your heart rate. I know that Caroline's spoken to one in the past, maybe more if you want to share what you've spoken to, and then I can share some other.
0: Sure. So the device I'm most familiar with and work the most with is in the Garmin product line. Um, and you can refer back to episodes four and five for a lot more detail on that, but you with the the Garmin watch and a lot of others now, they will track heart rate. They will help stratify that into intensity minutes. So they will let you know the device will report out if you were hitting those target zones that Laura described for us, um, as well as tracking step goals and sleep and other metrics, there are some, some nuances to getting them to report the intensity accurately, just as I understand the way the devices are built is they don't, while it looks like they're real time tracking heart rate, they're not capturing it every second of the day because the battery would die way too quickly. So you can put it in activity tracking mode to get a better um, assessment of your intensity minutes when you know you're exercising um,
1: and then turn it off when you're not to save the battery. Makes sense. That must be exhausting for a device to be <laughs> <laughs> continually tracking. And I know that I have some folks who use anything from a Fitbit to getting a, a watch from Polar. Polar is a long time brand of heart rate monitoring. Apple smartwatch I know has those features and I'm sure there's just loads of other options out there that you can wear as a wristwatch. Or if you prefer a ring, I've heard of the Aura ring before. I know there's a subscription service to that, but with the more you pay and subscribe, of course, most of the time, the more that you get out of those subscriptions or devices. So like Caroline said, doing sleep tracking and measuring things such as your heart rate variability. Those are all really awesome, awesome opportunities to be able to track your own biology or kind of, I think it's called biohacking, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and it's fascinating. And some people will like the apple watch in particular for heart health because some of the versions can do a very um rudimentary ekg so if there are some issues there and you'd like some backup that's an option and i think some of the apple watches also have a fall alert option so I know I worked with a woman once who had the fall alert on hers and it would text her daughter if the watch detected a fall. So some people like that for some, an extra layer of security, because as we've been hinting at when we are pairing vigorous exercise with a pre-existing neurological condition, there are some safety concerns we need to think about as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. I did not know that about the, the fall catching That's on the Apple Watch. That's really interesting. I, I think into some, that too.
0: yeah. I think some of the higher level Garmin devices do that as well. But I think Garmin being originally designed more for intense athletes, their alert system is more for like rock climbers who get stranded and fall as opposed to someone in their backyard. So I'm not sure if their fall alert would be as
1: relevant for the group of people we're talking about. Might not be quite as sensitive. Yeah. But I'm assuming. Um, and I think the the other good thing about using a device or even working with someone like us to help figure out your target heart rate ranges, we can take into consideration your resting heart rate as well, because that can also change your target heart rate zone a little bit too. Though the 220 minus age is still a good general standard, and I know endorsed by the CDC as well. So that's a nice, easy thing to be able to do at home. So when it comes to the intensity We do want to try to shoot for 150 to 300 minutes a week of moderate to high intensity exercise. And you can chunk that up however you want, Um, at least in in a 10 minute interval would be ideal just to be able to get yourself up into that heart rate zone that you want and stay there for a few minutes and decrease back down to your resting. So the, the CDC and WHO and hundreds, thousands of other research studies show that that amount of exercise is what is recommended and safe for older adults, younger adults, individuals living with chronic conditions, people living with disabilities. So that's a really good goal to get yourself to. And it's, it's fine if you're not nearly there at all, but just to be able to say, this is, this is my goal. I want to get in that 150 to 300 minutes per week. Other ways to to measure if you're doing exercise safely is if you have a blood pressure cuff at home. I always do this with my patients in the clinic and Just a a disclaimer I probably should have said before, it's always best to check with your your cardiologist or primary care provider if you have a history of cardiac conditions or any concerns before beginning a moderate to high intensity exercise program. Um, We do know it is safe and studies show that there is a very few adverse events that occur in populations of folks with chronic neurological diseases. So just taking that and extrapolating to general population for our folks that have had these severe neurological injuries, it is safe as for the general population as many studies show too. Anyway, so you've checked with your doctor if you had any concerns. And while you're exercising too, it's always important to to stop if you feel chest pain, chest tightness, dizziness, severe shortness of breath, or if you just have any concerns with how you're feeling, and then to let your medical professional know. Um, If you have a blood pressure cough at home, You'll start off by checking your blood pressure before you embark on this exercise and always making sure that your arm is resting at heart level. Ideally, you can have it relaxed on a table. So you'll check your pre-exercise. And then when you return from your, your walk or complete whatever exercise you choose, you check it in that exact same position once you're done. And it's normal for your systolic or that top number to rise and we generally keep it within the 20 millimeters of mercury range. Your systolic, so that top number should not drop more than 10 millimeters mercury after exercise. And, And if it does, we definitely want to have a conversation with your doctor and decrease the intensity of the activity that you're doing. The diastolic or the bottom number should either stay the same or might decrease a little bit after your exercise.
0: Yeah, that's really good to bring up, Laura, because if if your body's not responding to that activity by pumping more blood, by raising the blood pressure, that's when we're more likely to faint during exercise or get lightheaded or dizzy. So Sometimes people get excited that their blood pressure is finally dropping, but that would not be the right reason. So short term, we want blood pressure to increase with exercise. Long term, it will decrease if you are someone who exercises regularly, your resting blood pressure should come down. And I go into that a lot more in my course, but that's a good point to bring up. We do not need to be passing out while exercising.
1: No, definitely. And we, we also, if we do see that decrease, it could also mean there's something else going on with your heart. So we definitely just would want to get that checked out. As
0: many of us have seen and can imagine, someone with a neurological condition who probably isn't walking normally to begin with. How do we address safety issues like rolling an ankle or flaring up hip or knee pain, or some of those more like physical, musculoskeletal physical components of safety? Excellent questions.
1: So. When I'm working with folks in the clinic who've had a stroke, that is my number one concern too. Safety is my number one concern in watching the individual move, making sure that they aren't dragging their toe, which could cause a fall or landing on their foot at a funny angle causing an ankle sprain. So if they're are concerned, you're, you're watching your, your loved one walk or move, I would first recommend them go and see a physical therapist and make sure that they either have the proper bracing that they need or are recruiting the muscles they need to in the, the best way they possibly can. Sometimes it may take The caregiver or a family member to learn how to cue someone how to walk a little bit more safety might need to change their device that they're holding on to like the cane or or a walker. Ideally, if, if I can get all of my patients walking in a pool with And I was really fortunate at one place I worked that they had a a pool that had a treadmill and underneath it, which would be the coolest thing in the world to have access to. But if you can start doing walking laps in a pool, if you have some different pains that you're concerned about or fears of moving and injuring, at least you can be a little bit more buoyant and protected in that way. If that's not an option too, another way I had mentioned before about different modes of being able to do some higher intensity exercise could be on, on a bike, um, whether it be stationary or or otherwise, if, if safe, and maybe even an elliptical, if that's something else you enjoy too. But I like I said, I do recommend if you are having pains or concerns is reach out to to your local physical therapist to, to evaluate your movement and see what we can do to help reduce an aberrant movement or thus decreasing your pain. Won't go into too much detail there, but there's there's always a lot that can be done to help improve individuals movement to reduce pain and improve strength and capacity yeah that makes sense
0: so if it if it's just not working or you're worried about it just go ahead and get that physical therapy evaluation to get yourself set up for success with this exercise program
1: and then once you've got the tools you need here. Literally and figuratively, you can do whatever exercise you enjoy that is deemed safe for you. Can you think of a patient case where this has worked
0: really well and what the outcome was?
1: In terms of an individual wanting to come in and just not knowing where to begin? Yeah, certainly. I know. I mean, most of the folks that I see that are in the subacute phase after a neurological injury. We'll have had some therapy in inpatient in or home care, but still haven't gotten to that point when they're getting back to doing things they used to do. Or many folks that say, I, I walk every morning. I do 30 minutes every morning outside. My spouse and I, we go around the block or walk at the local track in the mornings. In an instance like that, if they they come in and at the point they're only walking 20, 30 feet, we start off by, again, making sure they're, they're safe from the, the cardiac standpoint, from the musculoskeletal standpoint, from cognitive standpoint. Oftentimes I'll help them onto a treadmill and as needed use a harness system just to make sure both they and I feel safe with them using this continuous walking machine. And I'll be continuously monitoring their heart rate, their perceived exertion. So what they're experiencing, what in that taking that zero to 10, one to 10 scale, how they're feeling and watching for how they're, how they look. <laughs> And we just kind of start off adding a minute or two every session or a few minutes each week and increasing the speed is tolerated or the incline is tolerated. And then that exercise or that their homework for that exercise is to go home and try to also increase your walking distance by a couple minutes every couple of days until they get up back up to their. 30 minutes per day goal. And oftentimes folks have great success with that too, especially, and again, key is the the motivation and that you're engaging in something that you want to be doing.
0: Yeah, thanks for walking us through that. I think it helps to make sense about how you really can go from a new injury a new disability and getting back into activity or maybe starting it for the first time if you weren't doing it before
1: and i think also what helps is to see for for some folks is to see other people going through it too or to have been able to talk to someone else who's gone through the rehabilitation process as well so just knowing that possible and you can do this and I love love talking to my patients about things that we spoke to about neuroplasticity and brain changes and how we can improve your your strength and health with the proper exercise dose so it's cool it's really really fun it
0: is do you have any closing thoughts words of wisdom to leave us with?
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, well clearly I'm very enthusiastic about getting folks back into doing this higher intensity exercise. But I think that the main thing is just knowing that it's it's safe and it's feasible. And it doesn't have to be you've gotta go run for 30 minutes outside or or do anything that's seemingly uninteresting. Just get out there and, and engage, just start somewhere, get a, get a buddy. So like I said, socialization to help keep your brain healthy and, and engage. So it's so great that this, I don't want to use word medication, but this tool that we have can help us in so many parts of our life. So if you can get in 20, 30 minutes or so a day, that would just be life-changing.
0: Well, thank you so much, Laura, for joining us today, for sharing your knowledge and resources and encouragement with us. If people would like to get in touch with you, is there any contact information you can share or, or social media or whatever you're most comfortable with?
1: Of course, and thank you, Caroline, too, for having me. I I'm, i just love any opportunity to share what I've learned and to help, is to help folks. Yeah, I can be reached at my email, my work email. It's L as in Laura, and then my last name, Meshes, M-E-S-C-H-E-S, at virginiahospitalcenter.com. And my little disclaimer is that you can reach me probably for the next two months. And then I will be off on maternity leave for a few months after that, but please don't hesitate to reach out. I promise I'll get back to you and just want to thank you all for listening. Thank you for your time. And, and I hope that you all have some good takeaways from our conversation today. And if, you're still interested in these topics, don't hesitate to to hop on to looking at the CDC or WHO, um, World Health Organization, or the National Institute of Aging and do some of your own research in the area. I know there's tons of books on, on exercise and brain health. There is one that I read Oh gosh, it was a few years ago. It's called Spark. I think this was from almost a decade ago now, but it still stands to have the true truth that uh, exercise can improve your levels of depression and stress and brain health and hormone balance. So it, it spoke to a lot of things that we've spoken to. And um, I'm sure there are loads more, more books now that you can read or listen to as well so the more you know the better prepared you'll be and hope you can share this with with other folks that you love too
0: great and we'll link to those resources in the show notes and yeah let's all get up and take a walk or move at this point (laughs) thank you i I do need to do that (laughs) thank you too caroline This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and does not create a provider-patient relationship between us. If you have questions about your health, please speak to a qualified health professional. If you would like to learn more about working with me as your qualified health professional, please visit carolinemorris.com. Did you know that gratitude is good for your health? If you found value in this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a rating or review. To keep the connection going, subscribe to Elder Health Connection on your favorite podcast player to get immediate access to upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. With love and gratitude, Caroline.